The second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians is over toward the back of the New Testament. And it is the text that we'll use today in chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, as you work your way through this New Testament trying to find Second Thessalonians, be careful or you'll miss it because it just has two or three chapters. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that we may be delivered from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen. The word in the King James is establish or establish you. But the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. A.W. Tozer in a in a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, makes this remarkable statement. He says, What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The gravest question confronting any of us is always God. And the most portentous, portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may do or say, but what he in his deepest heart thinks about God. That is a remarkable and heavy statement. I think what he meant to teach us in that statement was that the most important fact that any of us will ever confront in life is our knowledge, our concept of God. That is transcendent, that supersedes every other thing. Whether we be uh, just beginning our lives as graduating seniors, or whether we be uh, gray-haired senior citizens headed down the, toward the westering sunset, there is nothing any more important than that. The thing that's not, it's not as important, it's not important the financial or economic crisis of our time, not that important, or whether we'll find a job out in the marketplace, or our fears and threats of a nuclear annihilation, these are not as important as what I feel, what I think, what I know about God. A right belief about God relieves 10,000 temporal burdens, he said. That's a heavy statement. And I've had some time this week to ponder that statement, to run it over in my mind a little bit. I think he's right. I think, for example, what my daughter knows about me, what she thinks about me, or how she feels about me as her father, will affect every attitude and every action concerning her life. You've had a child to say, haven't you? Well, my daddy will take care of that. I mean, nothing's too big for, for him. Not, he, he's not uh, uptight. He doesn't worry. 
because he knows that his burdens become your obligation. The, um, the heaviest thing that is before us today is what we think about God. We have such decadent concepts of him. And some picture him as a kind of a cosmic policeman who rides around, you know, hoping he can catch somebody and, and punish them. And some picture him as a kind of a tottering old grandfather that's kind of senile and helpless. And some imagine God as a kind of a celestial slot machine. If I put my tithe in on Sunday and pull the crank, I'll get rich. We have all these concepts of God that are decadent. What do you think about God? And what if you had to write this morning a letter to some friends who lived in a hostile environment? When they walked down the street, they, they got the glares and the stares of people who loafed them and despised them. And they, and they lived in an environment where evil men were set upon destroying them. And they didn't know, but what if tonight someone would break their door down and take them away into exile, or worse still, do harm to their children. You were going to try to encourage them. And the government was against them, purposed to destroy them, and their children came home every day crying because they were rejected and alienated. What if you had to write some kind of encouragement to them? Or what if you had to stand on Sunday and preach a baccalaureate to graduating seniors? What would you say? If you believe that the most important thing about any man was what he thought about God, then you probably would say the same thing that the apostle said in this text. But God is faithful, and He will establish you, and He will keep you from the evil one. And that's all you'd need to say. God is faithful. The one note that runs through the Scripture, like the melody of a symphony, is the abiding faithfulness of God that He is everlastingly and eternally true to Himself, that He can never be false to Himself. You can always trust Him and count on Him. That's the symphony that runs through the Scripture. And I think that this one great attribute of God might be a kind of a foundation on which all the other attributes of God might rest. For what is His omnipotence if He's not faithful to that power? And of what value is His omnipresence if He is not faithful to be to me? And can a God be just who is not faithful? Lloyd Douglas, the author of The Robe, said he used to like to go every so often and visit an old violin teacher because he had such great wisdom. He had a studio in downtown New York. I guess you could call it a studio, said Lloyd Douglas. It was just a room in a long, on a long hallway of rooms. And there were other rooms like it on that floor and above them where musicians came to practice and to be taught. And one day he went into the old violin maker and he said, Well, what's new today? And the violin teacher took his violin down and laid it down. He went over to where a tuning fork was suspended by a silk thread from the ceiling. And he took his padded mallet and he struck that tuning fork and it rang. And he said, That's news. That's the news. That is A. It was A yesterday, it's A today. It'll be A next week and a thousand years from now. The soprano down the hall warbles off key and the tenor upstairs flattens the high ones and the piano next door is terribly out of tune and there's noise, noise all around me. But that, my friend, is A. 
It will steady you to know today that there is one thing in this life, in the noise of a chaotic, confused world that is constant. It is not transient. It is not at the mercy of a popular vote. It is permanent. You can always go back to it, and you can always count on it. It's what the author of the book of Hebrews meant when he stood and lifted his eyes in the midst of war and bloodshed when everything solid seemed to have been swept away and he said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever, you can count on him. And I want you to turn some time because I want you to be able to underline it to the 18th chapter of the book of Genesis and look at verse 25. I found it this week in my reading. And when you read that verse, you'll understand that, that it was when Abraham was praying for God to spare wicked Sodom. And in that marvelous passage, as he prayed for God to spare Sodom, he made this statement. It sounds like a question, but it's really not. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's more of an exclamation than it is a question. It's more of a conviction than it is a query. It is more of a testimony than a taunt. He knew the answer. The answer is yes, he will always do right. And it steadied Abraham with all of these questions that baffled him. He found faith in the character of the judge. He found confidence in all his dealings with mankind that the judge of all of man can be trusted to be just. He had learned in all of his experience with God that however much about the divine mind he could not fathom or understand, there was in the essence of his character the element of divine righteousness that you could always count on and depend on and trust. And Edwin Hughes preaches a sermon from this text and he pictures the old patriarch with his face and his heart turned toward God and he's pleading his case before the Supreme Court of Heaven. And he is modestly yet boldly asking God to lower his conditions and lower his standards and requirements and thus spare wicked Sodom. But as he pleads his case before God, he inches closer and closer and closer to the divine heart. And there he glimpses in God's heart a goodness that is far beyond his own. And he finalizes his plea as he pleads to the nature of the judge himself. And he rests his case, reminding the judge that he is by nature bound by the nature of his nature to do right. And I think that eventually that's where all of us have to rest our case before God with all of the questions we have no answers for. I mean, what about the heathen who've never heard the gospel? I don't know. And what happens when good things, bad things happen to good people? I don't know the answer to that. And why is it that some people experience great tragedies that make no sense? I have no answer. And why calamity? And why insanity? And why are there some good people right now who are dying with cancer? I don't have the answer to that. But I do believe that there is in the essence and the nature and the character of God a divine goodness that you can trust, the abiding faithfulness of God. You can count on that forever. 
And he never changes his mind about anything. How he felt toward his creatures, toward the sick, the babies, how he felt toward the fallen and the sinful. When he sent his son to redeem mankind, he still feels the same. And he never loses his enthusiasm. And he never changes his affection. He still feels the same toward us as the day when he stretched out his hands and said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can count on God to be good. You can trust Him. And because of that, two things are the result. He said, He will establish you. Young people, He will establish you. That, that, may, that word in the New Testament, the, in the uh, Greek language, means He will make you steadfastly sure. Steadfastly sure. Some artists were commissioned to paint what they believed to be the most peaceful scenes they could imagine. And some of them painted beautiful mountain lakes without a ripple on the, on the water. And some painted pastoral scenes of beautiful meadows with grazing sheep. And some painted animals unmolestedly asleep in the shade. But the man who won the contest painted a roaring rapid, waves cascading down. And there was a big oak tree standing by the rapids with its arms stretched out over the water in the spray. And on that on that limb of that oak tree was a nest, a bird nest. And sitting in that nest was a little bird singing his heart out with his head back. And underneath the picture was the caption, On the limb that swings sits a bird that sings, for he knows he has wings. And he found his peace not not in the absence of trouble, but in the awareness of the resources. His eyes were not on the wind, but on his wings. Wouldn't you like to be set steadfastly sure so that you're no longer a victim of circumstances, that your moods no longer rise or fall like waves that are driven by contrary winds? Wouldn't you like that? And I've been reading through the Psalms and these words of praise and singing and rejoicing come from the Psalms from these men who lived in adverse circumstances. They certainly didn't have it made. As a matter of fact, they talk about enemies that are seeking to devour them. Whence come these songs? Whence come these words of praise from these men? It came from, they came from their concept of, the, of God, from the knowledge they had of the holy. Listen to what they called him. They called him their refuge, their stronghold and fortress. They called him their shield and their rock. How do, you fe- how do you defeat a man whose God is a fortress? And how do you frighten a man whose shield is the Lord? And how do you shake a man who's established on the rock? I'm not sure that I know, to ha- I know how to define the term established or strengthened, but I think I can give you a picture of it. I think if you'll turn some time to the book of Philippians, 
that little book of joy and rejoicing, it seems it's the only book in the New Testament where the word sin is not found. And understand that it was written by a man from prison. And when he came to Philippi the first time, they beat him up and put him in jail. And when he wrote the book to the church in Philippi, he was writing from a Roman prison. And he says, they put me in bonds, but my bondage gives courage to the others to preach the gospel. And they put chains on my wrist, but it's caused the gospel to go into the praetorian guard and into Caesar's household. And they put me in prison, but my imprisonment has furthered the gospel and I rejoice in it. That's what it means to be established. Now where does God establish us or strengthen us? He does it in the mind. For it is in the mind where our fear is found. It's in our minds that anxiety is found. When a person is established, he's established in the mind. I think if you took this promise of the Lord out of first century sandals and put it into 20th century Nikes, it would say something like this. God is faithful and He will give you a winning attitude over life. I must say this to all of us this morning. It is not the circumstances of life that makes or breaks us. It's our attitude toward them. Henry Thoreau came to Walden Pond and he was distressed and confused and depressed and he confronted two questions. The two questions were these. Am I, am I what I am because I'm a victim of circumstances or do circumstances master me because I am who I am? Now those two questions are not academic. As a matter of fact, how you answer them, young or old, will shape your destiny. If you believe that you're a victim of circumstances, then you'll rest in that alibi and make excuses and change nothing. But if you believe that circumstances in life master you because of an inferiority within you, then you're confronted with the fact that you must change yourself, get a hold of yourself. John Miller said, living is not determined by what, by what life brings to us, but by the attitude we bring to life. And George Bernard Shaw said, circumstances, some people blame circumstances for their living. I don't believe in circumstances, he said. The people who get on with life are the people who, who go out and find the circumstances as they want them, and if they don't find them, they make them. In March of this year, six inches of snow fell on Atlanta, Georgia. Now, I've never been to Atlanta in the spring, but I'm told that it's beautiful there and flowers growing, etc. And it's just not the place for snow in, in, in March. And it just paralyzed Atlanta, Georgia. And was some guy, uh, a disc jockey, just seized on the circumstance, on the situation. And he started playing Christmas songs. He played, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And he played jingle bells. And then he started playing Christmas hymns. And people started calling into this radio station requesting this Christmas song and that. And while most of the people of Atlanta were shivering in the unseasonable weather, there were some who were basking in the warmth of the spirit of Christmas. And about the same time, Mrs. Hugh Durham, whose 
husband was the coach of the Georgia Bulldogs and Georgia was playing in the NCAA tournament about that time. She was interviewed and someone said, well, what would you think? Weren't you afraid when your husband was told that if he recruited to the University of Georgia black athletes to play on the basketball team that they were going to burn a cross in, in your yard? And she said, oh, no, we weren't afraid. We just got the coat hangers down and some marshmallows and we were going to have a party. She was established. And sometimes the greatest things that happen in life are the things that happen under the most adverse conditions. When the Curries, the French physicist, made their prize-winning discovery, it was in an old dilapidated building. It had a, it had a sunroof that leaked. It had no air conditioning, so in the summer it was stifling hot. And in the winter it was freezing cold, and they didn't even have an exhaust fan to, to take away the noxious gases. Certainly it wasn't a beautiful laboratory. And Robert Louis Stevenson wrote some of his greatest works when he was suffering from tuberculosis and was almost blind. And Beethoven wrote some of his greatest works after he became totally deaf. And John Milton wrote Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained after he was blind. And one critic said of the great American novelist Carson McCullers, when she died... Her life was a vocation of pain. And he went on to say that her works flowed from her troubled pen. Before she was 29, she suffered three severe strokes and was paralyzed on her left side. She, never, she thought she would never write again. And so gradually, at a pace of one page a day, she resumed her writing. And the pain grew severe as she got older and her husband committed suicide. And one day, not even... In one of the rare mentions of her trouble, she said, I think God got me mixed up with Job. But Job, she said, never curse God and neither will I, for I have life by the throat. It makes so much difference when you just turn everything over to God, when you let go of it and release it to Him. Like the woman who went into the air raid shelter in the, in the London bombing raids, took her pillow and went to sleep. Someone asked her, how do you do that every day, every night? She said, well, I just believe that God is concerned about me and He's up taking care of me and I don't see why both of us have to stay awake all night. He will establish you. There is one final word. He will keep you from the evil one. Now, I know when you read in the New American Standard, it looks like it means that He just kind of keeps hold of you. It doesn't mean that. It means, the word literally means He watches for the purpose of delivering. He watches for the purpose of delivering. Must I say it to those of us who are mature and aged? No, but I must say it to the young, perhaps. Wherever you go in this life, God is watching over you for the purpose of delivering you. It is not that He will deliver you from temptation, but He will deliver you from the tempter. And the God who, gave, who gives victory over circumstances, evil circumstances, gives victory over the evil one. It's exactly the same word Jesus used when He said, Pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He will deliver you. 
a little girl said to her father, is Satan bigger than I am? And her father said, yes, he is, honey. And she said, well, is he bigger than you? And she, he said, yes, honey, he's bigger than me. And she, her eyes got a little bigger, and she said, well, is he bigger than God? And he said, oh, no, honey, he's not bigger than God. And she said, well, I, don't be, I won't be afraid. You ever watch championship wrestling? Now, I was going to say something funny about championship wrestling. I think it's the most hilarious thing on TV. But, but I know there might be some wrestling fans. I think Larry is a wrestling fan. And, and I don't want him to get a, get a, a, a stranglehold on me after this service. That, those, those wrestling fans are ardent. I mean, they're, they're zealous. But I've got a daughter who has a crush on one of these Von Erichs, you know, that wrestle. And so on, on Saturday afternoon, occasionally we get championship wrestling. It's hilarious. Now, I don't know whether you've, you know anything about it, but I'm going to give you a little refresher course in championship wrestling. They have what they call the tag team match. And, and, and they, two guys are in the ring wrestling, but two guys are on the outside. You know, their partners are on the outside. And, and if you can get over there and touch your partner, he'll get in the ring and take over for you. And I was watching one day, and these two gorillas, I mean, they, they must have weighed 300 pounds. They were in there banging each other around and slamming each other around. And this guy got this fella down on the floor, and he was just pinning him. I mean, he was ready. And they were grunting and struggling and groaning. It looked like, it, you know, it's just any minute he was going to die. And he was squirming around. You know, he was just trying to get his foot over there so that he could touch his partner with his toe, you know. And, and here was this guy over there, you know, and he was just pulling on the ropes, you know, and just wanting in there so bad to help his partner out. And he would beat on his chest. You know, it was hilarious. And, and, and this guy was, was easing around over there, and it looked like that, it was, uh, you know, that he was being helped a little bit, but he got over there, and he touched that tag team partner. And that guy got up on the top rope of that, that ring. He looked like the Goodyear blimp with a, with a blonde wig on it. He was perched on that, on that rope, and he leaped off that top rope right on top of that guy. I mean, kaboom, and it just kind of tilted that, that, uh, that, that mat. And he picked that guy up, and he got him by the one arm, and he slung him over there, and he just crashed into that, uh, the turnbuckle of that, that ring. And then he did this flying mare, they call it. He kicked him, just, he just leaped up about this high and just flattened him out. And, and then he got him and he put him on his shoulders and he spun him around about three times and he wham right on the floor and fell on him and, 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 and uh, pinned him right there. And it was just glorious. It was wonderful. <laughs> I'm telling you, I thought, now where have, why haven't I been watching tag team wrestling? This is something great. Now, I don't know how in a world I'm going to tie this together, but it sounded good when I... Let me tell you, just outside the arena. I mean, he's not even outside the arena. There is this one who is the ally of the fighting saint. Man, he wants in there so bad. Take over for you. And all you have to do is just reach out by faith and lay hold on him. And when he comes into the arena... This Jehovah 
he takes charge. And he puts a lock on every enemy in your life. And he pins him. And as they marched to the Red Sea, Pharaoh was coming behind. And Moses stood with his hand cupped to his mouth and said, Be still and see the salvation of God. These Egyptians that you have seen today, you will never see again. And then he turned to his people and cried, While you are still, God will fight for you. And the psalmist said, Come and see the desolations he makes in the earth. He makes wars to cease and bloodshed to stop. And he beats the chariots into chariots of fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. I tell you, He will deliver you. He's on your side. And this is my prayer to you, every one of you who leave out of this place to begin a new life. I pray this of you that the Lord will direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. May we pray. Father, eternal God, our Father, what we know about you today, what we've heard about you from your word, we believe you still are. It is still true. And we believe, Father, that you'll be faithful as long as there is a God to what you've always been and what you are. And we are established, we're strengthened, we're delivered in that awareness. And so we go out of this place this morning no longer fearful, no longer anxious, no longer defeated, no longer overcoming, overcome, but overcoming. Because of what we believe, what we know, and what we think about you. We reach out in faith to lay hold upon you now, in Jesus' name. Now we have these invitations. Would you look this way, please? We'll invite you to come this morning to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Have you ever come to that point of time in your life where you repented of your sin and where by faith you turn to trust Jesus Christ for your salvation? Oh, we're praying for you this morning. We are praying that you will come and give your heart and life to Jesus to be saved. Oh, we're praying for you. We want you to come out of these seat, out of these pews. We want you to come down this aisle because Jesus wants you to come and give your heart and your life to Jesus. Oh, we want you to be saved today. We're praying for you to be saved. Don't go out of here without knowing Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Just come by faith to trust Him. 
The invitation for you this morning is for you to come and place your life with us. Oh, we need you. We're praying for you. We feel like God has uniquely brought together this church, and we want you to be a part of it. And we promise that we'll give support to your life and encouragement, and we'll let God use you through us. And You have so much that you can give to our body, our family. We need you. We want you to come. Oh, we're praying you'll come. We want you to come this morning if you want, need to come to rededicate yourself to Christ. He might establish you and deliver you from the evil one. He stands ready to just take over the need you have and the case that's before you and the circumstances and help you to know in your mind that you can triumph. Oh, we want you to come. And now we'll give you an opportunity to come. We'll ask you to step out and come while we sing together our hymn of invitation. Would you stand? Would you come?